Again, I am excited to go into God's Word with you today. I'm going to be doing a neat passage, um, probably one you've all heard before, read before. It's in all three or three of the four gospel accounts, so I would imagine you've heard it, and you might have even seen it. You've read it numerous times, I hope, but I pray that you will be encouraged. It is great words. As we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, we have saw the followers who supported the disciples of Jesus back in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Followers obeying the Master, supporting the Master and His disciples as the ladies did. We saw the soil, and Jesus used the parable of the soils. The disciples that hold fast to the Word of God and bear fruit. And then in, and that's in, found in, verse, in chapter 8, verses 8 and 15. And then in chapter 8, verse 16, we saw the disciples would share the Lord and share the light that they had. All of this are results of being a genuine follower of Christ. We've talked about obeying Jesus and what does it mean to obey him. Today we get to see why we obey him. We get, today we get to see that it's a privilege to obey him. It's not a burden. It's actually a joyful privilege to obey our master. How do we see this? Well, we get a glimpse of our Savior in our passage today. Take your Bibles and turn over to Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Again, it is not a burden to follow Jesus Christ. It's not a drudgery. It's not a hard work. As long as our focus is in the right direction, as long as our eyes are on our Savior, as long as we are enjoying Him and knowing how great He is, today we see that this is the truth in, Rome, in Luke chapter 8. Last time we saw, as we went through Luke in the previous time, that those um, who had much would be given even more. And we found that in back 8.18. Notice it says, So take care how you listen, for whoever has to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away. The idea is that those that are his own will grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior. Those who have much will be given more. And those who have a right relationship with Christ will be given more and more and more. That's what Jesus is saying. But those who seek to justify themselves by their own actions and by who they are, that will be taken away eventually. Then in verse 21, we also saw that Jesus elevated a relationship with him over even physical relationships. In effect, he says, all who listen to me and obey me are those that are rightly related to me. Today we get a glimpse of those who are rightly related to him. They get to see the glory of the Savior even more. And he says, in effect, look, it's not about physical relationships ultimately. It's ultimately about being rightly related to Jesus Christ. Luke then went to great lengths to give an accurate account of all the details. However, as, we, as we're going through here... I want you to notice something. 
as you're going through the other gospel accounts, and we're going to talk about that today. We're going to read the other ones today because it's a short passage that I'm going to try to do. Luke doesn't always go in the same order. So the natural question that might come to some of your minds is you might say, well, okay, then there must be errors here. Why is there a different order sometimes in the Bible? Why is it that Matthew goes in one order, Luke goes in a different order? It's important to note, Luke often does give an accurate account, but his chronology is not always perfectly in the order. And that's okay to do, because who's he inspiring him? God, the Holy Spirit. So God can work in Luke to not go in the same order for a purpose. And Luke is doing this, especially in these two miracles. They come in a different order than Matthew and Mark. Now, the two miracles we're going to deal with in the next two weeks, they're in the same order. First, there's the calming of the sea. Then there's the healing of the demoniac, or actually two, demon, or two men possessed by demons, as one account says. Those two things happen in order, but they're out of order in the grand context. But why? Well, you see a little hint of it in, in Luke chapter 8. Look at your Bibles and look down at Luke chapter 8, verse 22. The very few first words are kind of a little hint. Now, on one of those days, or it could be translated, it came to be on one of those days. In other words, Luke is even given a hint. We take this a little bit out of order here. Why am I doing it out of order? Why is Luke doing it out of order? Because it develops the themes that he's been talking about previously. He does this and explains this so that it will develop the concept of the privilege of obeying the Messiah. The privilege of obeying the Savior. In other words, why do I obey? Why are we this way? Because of who he is. And Luke's going to give us a glimpse of our Savior to remind us why we obey. Why the disciple wants to obey him. So let's read our passage, Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. Okay. That doesn't work. Do this. That doesn't work. Today we're going to see that it is a great privilege to know and follow Jesus our Lord. Let's read our passage. Now, one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. And he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the winds and the surging waves, and they stopped and became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful at this moment and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We do pray now that as we look at this, 
story, these amazing events of our Messiah calming the storm. We pray that we will understand the words and that you will apply them to our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is working in us. Help us, Lord, to learn from you that it is a great privilege to follow you. Help us, Father, now to know you better. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. There is a tension that arises, difficulties that arise in our minds when we contemplate the Lord Jesus. Throughout the Bible, there's concepts like this where two or more concepts seem to kind of be difficult to reconcile. They kind of conflict in our minds. The difficulty is often because we are humans and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. For example, the Trinity. Anybody that can say that they get this completely and understand it, no problem, uh, is probably fibbing. Because let's face it, there are not three gods, but there is one God. But there are three separate persons, individuals, that make up one God. We must leave this tension in our mind. There are three persons in one God. This is how God reveals himself, right? Does three equal one? In the case of the Trinity, yes. Uh, there are three persons and there's one God. That's just the way it is. Why? Because that's who God is and that's what he said in his word. It's attention. How do I put that together in my mind? I can't. But God says it, so we believe it. That's what he says, right? Another example is the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. Many of us probably grapple with this all the time. God is obviously in control of everything, right? All events, past, present, and future. God has declared the end from the beginning, his word says. He's in total control. Yet, mankind is responsible for what they do. The tension is, how can man be responsible if God has ordained everything? The answer is, man is responsible and God has ordained everything. They seem to be contradictory, right? What do we do? Do we say, oh, well, I'm just going to chuck this thought. <laughs> no. Do we say, no, God's sovereign. I'll throw that one over here. And man's responsible. I'll throw this one over here. And I'll come up with my own idea of how God is. No. We stick with what scripture says. Even when things seem to contradict, we say, okay. God, your ways are bigger than our ways. We trust you, right? That's what the Bible says, so we trust God. The same is true of Jesus as revealed in this passage. Today we see another of these tensions with our passage. It's the humanity and deity of our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, and he became man. The tendency is for us to see Jesus as some superman. Somewhat like this. The picture really lays it out there good. Who is Superman? Well, he's Clark Clint Kent, right? Clark Kent dresses up as Clark Kent, and then he takes off his clothes and becomes Superman, right? This is not how Jesus is. Instead, he is, not, unlike the world, the world would say that Jesus, or some would say Jesus is, Mostly God and a little bit man. 
Or they might reverse it and say, he had some deity, but he's only man. But this isn't the way it is. Jesus is not Clark Kent. He is fully man and fully God. Remember, Superman was not a human. He was an alien. He came from another planet. Jesus, on the other hand, was God who became man. What's the point? Jesus is fully man and fully God. How do you reconcile those two things? You don't. They're just there. <laughs> he is man and he is God. We see it in the passage today. The tension stays there and we must leave it there. The answer is he is both God and man. We see in our passage both that Jesus is human and that he is God himself. These truths stand right by each other in the same verses, three verses. You see he's God and he's man in the same three verses. As we look at this passage, we'll see some better background. Let's get a, a little bit. It's interesting that, like I said, despite the different order normally, always in all three accounts, these events always happen. The first event, the calming of the sea. Then the second event, the healing of the demoniac. Why is this? Well, the reason is because the first miracle happens because the second miracle is on the agenda of Jesus. Jesus has the second miracle already in mind. The father somehow revealed to him that he needs to go to the other side of the lake. This side he goes and so therefore he calms the sea. Let's look at the other passages. It's not Superman by the way. He is different. He's fully God and fully man. When he got into the boat, Matthew 8, 23, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? So that the boat was being covered with waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him and saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and he became, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? Let's look at Mark's account. On that day, when evening came, now this one looks like it's in order, doesn't it? Because he's telling specifically the events before. He said to them, Let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. That's another detail. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the, a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. The wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now at first glance, when we note, look at these passages... We might be asked this, these questions in our, in our mind. Why is there some differences within the passage? I want us to kind of cover these a little bit today. It's obviously 
not that one of them is wrong. It's obviously not that some of the words are just different uh, or, or summary phrases of what he said. I think all the words are literally true. I want to kind of give you an example of this, too. If, if the storm is coming big, okay, we're in a boat. Do you think that when they came to wake up Jesus, they said only one thing? Master, master, wake up. No. There was frantic in the house. <laughs> Probably everything was said. Teacher, master, Lord, get up, save us, help. All of these things are happening. All of these things are saying, being said. So each writer is doing what? He's giving a summary of the events. Does he give every word that's said, each writer? No. They give summaries of it. So there is not a contradiction. One of them, you notice that before Jesus rebukes the storm, he says to them about their little faith, right? And then in the other accounts, it's after he calmed the storm. Does that mean there was a contradiction? No. He gets up and he says the words as he goes, calms the storm, and re-says the words and explains them more. That's just normal. That's how we would talk, right? Don't let anybody deceive you with the concept that these things are contradictions. They're not. But they help to give us better details, better pictures of what the story's all about. So let's look at a little background. First of all, this is the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is actually a giant lake. It sits about 600 feet below sea level, which means that there's ground way up around it, mountains and things. It's way down low. Jesus departed with his disciples around Capernaum area. This is the city that he took as his hometown during the ministry time, as recruited in one of the gospel accounts. And he set sail across the lake to the Gerasene territory. The Gerasene territory would have been an area that was non-Jewish. There were not Jewish people, not many Jewish people there. So Jesus sets sail across from Capernaum to the Gerasene area. I want you to look at a couple of other things. It's an amazing record of the Lord's uh, glory on display. Notice Jesus states, and look in your Bibles, let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, this phrase right here is so crucial. If you mark your Bibles, this is an important one. You say, why? That little phrase, why is it important? It is very important. It is tremendously important. You're going to understand the passage a lot better just because of that little phrase. Let's go to the other side of the lake. He did not say, let's go sailing. He said, let's go where? To the other side of the lake. That's very important. But when he gets in there, he does the miracle and he returns right away. So the idea is that he just goes over, does one miracle, and comes back. Look at 837, Luke 837. It says, And all the people of the country of the Gerasene, after he heals the demoniac, they all come out, they are surrounding district, asked him to leave, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got in the boat and returned. Verse 40 says, And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him. For they had been all been waiting for him. So the idea is, is he goes over, does one miracle, and comes back. 
great plan here. We'll see it as it unfolds. So the first verse, or miracle, rather, is tied to the second miracle. The first would not have happened without the second one, and vice versa. Again, Jesus says what? Let's go over to the other side of the lake. Jesus stated, in effect, I have an agenda to go over to the other side of the lake, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and so the disciples do what? They say, okay, let's get in the boat. Let's go. Why did they get in the boat? Simple answer. They were following him. They were obeying him. They were doing what he said he was going to do. Their understanding of Jesus led them to do what? Obey him. Okay, he says get in the boat. We're getting in the boat. We're going to the other side. But their understanding of Jesus was not fully informed. Let me explain. The disciples were a work in progress. Now, when you're reading the gospel accounts, how many of you have picked on the disciples before in your mind? Judged them? Oh, yeah. Especially Peter, right? Foot and mouth disease. Right? We all pick on Peter. We all look at the disciples and we say, man, what in the world are they doing? He just told them this. He just did this amazing miracle, and what are they doing? We all have a tendency to do that, right? The problem is is that we forget that this is their first three years of walking with the Lord, many of them. How many of you want your first three years of walking with the Lord to be recorded for everybody to read? Anybody? No, how many, how many of you want your first 10 years recorded for everybody to read? They are a work in progress. They are growing in grace and knowledge of him. He is their teacher. He is their master. He is their Lord, but they still don't get him fully. They were believers, but they were learning believers. And again, They were still infected with that human problem of sin. They still had that remnant of sin. And it shows up regularly. So, they get in a boat. Let's look at the boats. Y'all have seen this before? This is a replica of the, the boat that was found over in the Sea of Galilee area. It was old. This is a a rebuilt or a replica of it. It gives you an idea of maybe what it looked like. That's about how big it was. This might have been, probably was, the size of the boat during that time. Now, I don't know about you, but getting in something that small and going out in that giant lake and winds and waves, that would be a little bit intimidating, wouldn't it? Remember, though, who are, who are the ones taking Jesus across the lake? Who are they? Fishermen. They were experts. Mark says the disciples took Jesus to the boat. Jesus went directly into the boat. And he went down. Mark 4.38 says he went down and fell asleep on a cushion. He was exhausted. He laid in the back of the boat. That's what the stern is, by the way. Learned that. Reminded of that this week, right? The bow's the front. He went and laid down in the back of the boat. 4.38. And the other Gospels make it clear Jesus had taught parables to the crowd, so he was exhausted. By the way, y'all hang out with me on Sunday afternoons, some of you, and you wonder why I have a hard time keeping my eyes awake. This can be a little bit exhausting. 
I can't imagine those guys that preach two and three times in the, on a Sunday morning. What's the idea? He's exhausted. He's tired. What does this point to? Right away, the first part of the tension. Jesus is what? Fully human. Jesus is fully human. He is tired. As mentioned, we see here Jesus is just like me and you. He got tired. This is a human trait that is universal for all mankind. Being tired is not a sin. Did you hear that? It's normal. If you get tired, it's normal. And Jesus experienced it. This shows that Jesus, again, was just like me and you in many ways. Human. In John 4, 6, we see another example. He went to Jacob's well, was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journeys, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Y'all have read that story before, too. Jesus was tired. We see Jesus worked himself to exhaustion. He loved people and his father, and this moved him to work till he was exhausted. This reminds us of Hebrews 4.15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So the idea is, is that Jesus knows what it's like to be a human because he is so, let's continue and look at the events. It says, the storm came down upon the lake. This is a fierce wind that descended on the lake. The idea is, is came down points to a common problem on the lake. I don't know if you're going to see this. Can you see it? All the way around the lake are mountains. And so, when you have these valleys and you have wind and storms that would come down through these valleys... It is huge. It creates gigantic storms in a moment. They can come up on a uh, on one of the uh, one of the tra or one of the ships or one of the boats real quickly. Here's another pi picture. I don't see. You can't see it, man. Have y'all ever been on Google Earth yet? You gotta get on that thing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's really neat. This is a picture from Google Earth. I don't know if you can see it, but the idea is, is that you're way up on a mountain here. This is where Garrison, the Garrison's probably is located. So he's looking down. I'm looking out, and the lake's way down. And so what's this, what this does is it creates more uh, uh, powerful storms because as they came down off the mountains, it would create tension and create a greater scale. So we have this circumstance. The sea... When high winds cause huge waves and storms, and that's exactly what's happening. So let's keep going. That's, by the way, the track that they would go. Looking back at our passage, notice another couple of observations from the text. Their circumstances were terrifying. Let's walk through this now. Notice Luke says, they were filling up with water. Matthew's words are even more amazing. It says that the waves were literally covering the boat. Now think about that for a second. How many of you? <laughs> Put yourself there for a second. Stop for a second. Be in the boat for a second. Small boat, waves over top the boat. What are you thinking? Get me off of this thing <laughs> is what we're thinking, right? It comes to mind the thing that shocks me. And it shocks me all the time. Every time I read the story, I think, wait a second. 
He's asleep. He's asleep. What's he doing asleep? Waves over top. Come on. What is going on? The boat is filling up and Jesus is asleep. Luke's account says, as the nautical term for ships being in heavy ways, being filled with water. They're being swamped, literally. And these guys were fishermen. They knew how to navigate a boat. They waited, and they had seen these kind of storms, hadn't they? They knew what they were doing. They waited before they woke him up. Why do I know this? Because in Mark's account, in Mark 4.37, it says, Boat so much that the boat was already filling up. What does that imply? It had been a while. The water was starting to fill up, and it was a process. They were being filled up. So they waited. Can you see him on the boat? He's sleeping. There's water. Get it out of here. Get the water out. And it's filling up. Get the water out. They didn't do it right away. They didn't go to him and say, come on, wake up. That's pretty important. And then Luke's account says this. They were in danger. That is a very important phrase. To be in danger. Who is saying this? Luke. Not the men. Luke is describing the events. They are in danger. See, because some of you might say, wait. Well, they're not really in danger. They weren't really because that's what he rebukes them. They couldn't have been really in danger because if they were really in danger, Jesus would have never let that happen, right? But they were really in danger, really in danger. Luke says it. And it says, all three accounts says, that all three of them say, we are perishing. We're being destroyed. We're coming to the end. That's what they said to Jesus. Every, all three accounts. The concern for his disciples is obvious from their action, or the concern from the disciples, rather, is obvious from their action and their words. They woke him up, and they said, Master, Master, we're dying. And they came to him and woke him up and said, Save us, deliver us, Lord, for we are perishing. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They woke him, and they expressed great fear. What they call him, master, teacher, Lord, all of these show high respect for Jesus, don't they? All three titles express their submission to him. He's their master. He's their teacher. He's their Lord. But their understanding of him is still lacking. Their trust in him is still weak. He makes this clear to them in the next verse. They believe they were going to die as seen in their statement. We're, we're perishing. And the danger is real. So the natural question, and I have a question for you. I want you to think on this for a second. Why does Jesus rebuke them? Think about that for a second. Why does he rebuke them? Let me ask you a question. If you're in a difficult spot, okay, put yourself in a difficult spot. What are we supposed to do? Pray. Call out to the Lord. Seek him. You're in a difficult spot. What are you supposed to do? Help. How many times does the scripture say, if you're worried, 
Seek him. Cast your cares around him, right? Ask. What did he do? What did they do? That. They did it. They went to him. Why does he rebuke them? I'll see you next week. What did he do? What did they do? Did they do something wrong? Yeah, he rebukes them. He says this in Matthew 8, 26. Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? What do you mean? We're coming to you. Then he got up in Mark 4, 40. It says, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Hmm. If Jesus is sleeping, what should they have taken? Everything's okay. He's Jesus. He's their Lord. He's the Messiah. They couldn't reconcile in their minds that he was God and man. They were stuck in their circumstances and their humanity. He is sleeping, and yet they are dying. So he must not be able to save them completely. There's something wrong. Lord, save us, is Matthew's account. But they were not really in harm, were they? Were they really in harm's way? Were they? Or weren't they? Key phrase. Let us go to the other side. That's a key phrase. What did Jesus say? We're going to the other side. What is that? A promise. That's a fact. It's going to happen. Let's go to the other side. What was the problem? What did they do wrong? Well, Jesus tells them the exact problem. He tells them what their problem was. They didn't trust him. Their focus was on the circumstances, not on him. Now, yes, they went to him and described it, but in effect, they still were too much focused on the circumstances. Their focus was on supposed logic. We are dying, not on his word. Two clues are given. Notice, Jesus' words at the beginning of the trip. They said, we're going to the other, he said, we're going to the other side. Also, Jesus' actions should have screamed it to him, right? If he's sleeping, we're okay. <laughs> this is God man. <laughs> God man sleeping in the boat. This boat ain't going down. <laughs> he's got a plan. God's in control. The Savior's sleeping in the boat. Hey, where's the pillow? Let's sleep. <laughs> but their eyes were not on Christ, were they? Where were their eyes? Their eyes were on the circumstances. Their eyes were looking at the waves. Their eyes were watching the boat fill up. How many of you, oh, how many of us have found ourselves looking at our circumstances and doing the same thing? Watching the water rise and going, what's going on? What's going on? What's, come on, Lord, what are you doing? We are very much like this. 
G. Campbell Morgan makes a great statement as to whether the disciples were wrong in waking up Jesus, and he states this. He says, Now I think we had better get bluntly to the point. At once, they made a mistake. It is very easy for me to say that they made a mistake. I would not dare say it except upon a certain basis. I have a certain fact, a basis. If I know myself, I would have wakened him too before they did even. But I would have been wrong just as they were wrong. Do you get this? I love that preacher. That's a humble preacher. How many of you would have woke Jesus up? I think I would have done it in the first wave. <laughs> as soon as a little bit of water went in the boat, I'd be like, hey, hey, come on. <laughs> what are we going to do here? <laughs> you sure you want to go to the other side? This ain't the way. <laughs> we need to turn around and go back <laughs> quick. Folks, the big problem was the disciples' attention, their focus. They were looking at what was happening around them instead of looking at who was in the boat with them. Did you get that? They were focused on how they would survive instead of meditating on what the Savior said was going to happen. We're going to the other side. I'm with Pastor Morgan on this one. I'm sure I would have woke him up. But the reason is my trust in the Lord is still prone to wane. Are you still prone to wane? Are you still prone to doubt, to struggle? Oh, may our Lord strengthen our faith, right? Help us to remain fixed on him in all circumstances. The disciples should have hunkered down, pulled up a seat next to the Savior. They should have sat down in the boat and fixed their eyes on Jesus, the sleeping Savior. (laughs) Wouldn't that have been a neat story? Sit down, looking at him, all eyes on him. That's the focus. That's what should have happened. We don't do that, though, do we? We're always doing this instead of focusing on Christ. Always. I'm looking forward to seeing the Father and being with Christ and knowing all these things. I want you to notice, look. Despite their lack of faith, what's Jesus do? (laughs) He doesn't just say, tough it out. Come on, sit down, get in the boat. We're going to watch. We're going to ride this thing out together. That's good news too, right? He sees how weak they are. He sees their, he has pity on them in effect. In a sense, we see the compassion of our God. We see the compassion of our Lord here. And we see the next main point, that Jesus is fully God. He is fully God. What does he do? At that moment, he got up and rebuked the winds and the surging waves, and they stopped and became calm. Literally, this could be translated, the one who was woke up (laughs) got up and rebuked the winds. In other words, emphasizing again, He was the one that they woke up, emphasizing that he was asleep. 
This is shocking. And the reaction of the disciples is proof. Again, some of you have heard uh, my personal illustration of this, but I think it fits really good. I have some bitter memories of waves in my past and trying to stop them. When I was in at University of Florida, one time when I was younger and a lot less wise, I decided I would learn to surf. Not only was it uh, financially an unwise decision, it was also very physically unwise for me to do also. I spent a lot of money on surfboards and never learned how to surf. <laughs> so one time I decided to go out with my surfboard. I, David, were you with me or not? Oh, he walked out. He's taking care of the kids. I decided I was going to learn how to surf. I took my surfboard in my hands, and I started out, and the waves were about three foot high. started walking towards the wave. I was psyching myself up. You can do this. You can do this. You can do this. No problem. You can do this. Right? I'm going out there to do this, and I can do it. And I entered the water. The waves hit my leg. I said, oh, these are small. No problem. My mind, by that time, had stopped working. I was brain dead. I was messing up big time. As I walked into the water, I decided I would put my board up in front of the next wave because it's nothing. Waves are nothing. So I took the board and I put it out in front of me just like this to hit the board, hit the wave. Okay, I'm going to hit the wave. And I hit the wave, and boom, the board hit me like that and dazed me. I put the board down, and blood started shooting out of my nose. <laughs> I learned a very valuable lesson that day. <laughs> Waves are powerful, <laughs> and I'm weak, and I can't stop them with a surfboard. <laughs> and my nose can't either. <laughs> But Jesus can. I'm just a man. I'm just man. I'm fully man. He's fully man. But also fully God. And what did he do? He calmed the storm. Waves coming over the boat. Boom! Speaks. Hush. Be still. Anybody do that? No. He's God. It's a privilege to follow him. Because after all, John 1.3 says, All things came into being through him and apart from him. Nothing came into being that has not come into being. Hebrews 1.3 says, And he is the radiance of his glory. And the exact representation of his nature. Talking about God. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had purification, made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So while the disciples didn't get it right the first time, they do appear to get it right now, don't they? Look at their response in Luke chapter 8, verse 25. They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Notice, fear, a godly fear, is a proper response to understanding who Jesus is. Awe of him. 
They were amazed at him. It's a proper response to seeing the glory of the Savior. And while this, they worshipped him. They showed the light by describing that he is something far beyond us. He is more than just a man. I think the disciples illustrate well how walking with Jesus is a process of growing in grace and knowledge of him, isn't he? Aren't they? They are not perfect, but they grow in their understanding of him. And this leads to more and more worship. Have you looked out, folks, and seen, maybe you've even seen it in your own heart, why do I keep stumbling? Why do I keep messing up? Why do I keep doing these things? I believe with all my heart the answer isn't because we just aren't hunkering down and doing it right. It's because our view of God is small. All of us in this room have an understanding of God. Even if we've studied scripture and studied doctrine for years, our view of God is still small. The more we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior and we know who he is, then we will see it a privilege to obey our master and we will worship him as we should. So what can we learn from these events? Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Jesus should be the focus of all of our attention at all times. We must trust Jesus and his word when we face what appears to be an impossible circumstance. He is true. We can know that Jesus is compassionate and he sees our difficulties and will show us mercy if we will just seek him. And Jesus is all about teaching his own who he is and what he's all about. Jesus' great act of mercy was still to come. That's where we see the greatest demonstration of his glory, the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, would you say you're with the disciples? Little faith. Doubt, struggle, stumble. Still fall down. So what's your answer? Your answer isn't, look at the circumstances and let me fix them all. Your answer is what? Focus your attention on the Savior. For he is the one who has come to die to pay for sin. His righteousness given to us and rose from the dead and reigning on high. God, that's who we must pay our attention to. All the time, every circumstance, not just when things get difficult. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that you revealed to us his glory. Help us to keep our attention on him. God, when we stray, help us to be quick to repent, to turn to you, to trust in you. God, we need you. We are in desperate need of you. Please help our view and our understanding of you grow that we may worship you as you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.